Dave Fanning on 2FM. It is with very great grief that the members of the Boomtown Rats announced the death this morning of Gary Roberts, their friend and guitarist. The remaining members of the band, Pete, Bob and Simon, extend their deepest sympathy to his family and friends. On a clear spring evening in 1975 in a pub in Dunleary in Dublin, Gary became the founding member of what turned out to be a great rock and roll band, driven largely by that sound of his, a storm of massive considered noise that punched out from his overtaxed amplifiers and which animated not just the rest of the group, but audiences he played to around the world for fans he was the legend and he was for us he was Gazer the guy who summed up the sense of who the rats are we've known Gary since we were children and so we feel very strangely adrift without him tonight safe travels Gaz thanks for everything mate and that's a, a statement which was signed by founding band members Bob Geldof Pete Burkett and Simon Crow. and Gary was in with us on the programme just a couple of years ago and um, I was I'll, I'll just give you a bits of that now just started off talking to him just about the formation of the rats in the mid 70s in Dunleary and uh, I wasn't sure it was him and Bob or was him and Johnny Fingers as in Johnny Moylet and that so we'll take it up from there uh, well actually it was me and Johnny Johnny and I uh, I used to spend a lot da- a lot of time down at the Moylet's house Johnny played the piano and I had a guitar and we just sort of we played a load of songs and stuff and uh, occasionally we'd go to parties we'd be the boars that would, would uh, monopolise the piano and stuff and and uh, perform songs to everybody and uh, we seemed to be going down quite well so um, I just said to Johnny we should put a band together uh, I said no, I was in a band at school with Simon so we could get him to play drums his cousin Pete Briquette Patrick Cusack as his real name is yeah. uh, and Jerry Cott they came along and uh, and thus a band was born Kind of. Yeah, well, yeah, there's a little yeah. bit more to it than that in terms of getting a manager in called Bob Geldof and then you realise, well, actually he might be better off as the lead singer. But I'm going to go to a few other bits and pieces in terms of, like, the late... I mean, I'm, I'm going to say the rats, to me, were kind of 76 to 86, just to give it a 10-year thing. After 86, yeah. you became a sound engineer for Simply Red, for Orchestral Manoeuvres in the Dark. Uh, you were right. sort of front of house for Flesh for Lulu and all that kind of thing. Did you tour the yeah. UK and the US with some of these people? I toured the states with um, with Flesh for Lulu, but uh, then after after I got back from from mixing the Lulus in the states, uh, sort of sitting in this farmhouse in Herefordshire, wondering what I was going to do next, and uh, a friend came around and saw a door that I'd made, and asked me if I'd um, help him to convert a barn, so I ended up going off doing that, uh, and I spent a few years doing sort of woodwork and making windows and doors and putting up stud walls and stuff like that just for something to do and earn a, earn a, earn a crust. Okay, if we go back then, because as I say, I'm jumping all over the place. You were, uh, like your dad was a double bass player in, was it a show band or just a band or a swing yeah, band? Yeah, it, it was a little four-piece, I think, called The Melodists. Right. And uh, dad used to... Um, drag his double bass around on a trailer behind his motorcycle. He had a sort of an, an aerial 350 <laughs> motorcycle with mum on the back seat and the, and the uh, double bass in a trailer behind. And you went so, to high school in Dublin and also then, yeah. like, you know, you were sent to this Newtown Quaker school, a boarding school that's in right. Waterford. Now, yeah. you were meant to kind of get yourself together down there. That's what your parents wanted. But what you discovered was there was a choir or there was a musical something or other and you saw a thing called a guitar. Is that the way it went? There was a band in the fifth year or sixth year with electric guitars and I saw an electric guitar and I thought, and heard it and I just thought, <laughs> 
that's just absolutely amazing. I want one of those. Mm. So um, I persuaded my parents to buy me a cheap electric guitar. And during those early teenage years, were you listening to the bluesy people, the John Males and the Kinks and the Yardbirds and all that stuff? Yeah, and uh, there was a guy in my class who had sort of the old, really old, like bl- Blind Lemon Jefferson and oh, Lead right, Belly yeah. and all that yeah. sort of stuff. So. So we listened to loads of stuff like that. Also, like you know, by that stage, then we were coming into a, an era when you could do it all yourself. As you say, you were playing yourself. Uh, Johnny might have been on piano in the house. You get this guy Geldof around because he lived up the road or whatever it was, or you were a friend of his or something along those lines. And yeah, uh, I'd been hanging out with him for a while. Yeah, right. Yeah. And he arrives in the front room. It was a question of him being the manager for about ten minutes, wasn't it? Uh, well, that was the idea. I mean, uh, I got the band together with Johnny, and once we'd got everybody together, I was kind of elected to be lead singer and rhythm guitar player. Uh, so, uh, because I knew Geldof quite well at that stage, I knew he sort of he was an entrepreneurial sort of type. Okay. Uh, I thought he'd make a very good manager, so I asked him to come down to a rehearsal, and. Um, at the rehearsal, he produced uh, the Dr. Feelgood album. I think it was Down by the Jetty. Yeah. Yeah, their, uh, yeah. their first album. Yeah. And, um, and he had a harmonica. Coincidentally, he had a harmonica in the, in the right key for us to do She Does It Right. Right. So we learned that and a couple of the other songs. I mean, the number ones that came in Britain, the two number ones and Top of the Pops yeah. and all the rest of it, it was quick enough, the whole thing. Can you remember when the first number one made number one and the reaction that you had when you were told? Because it was only, it, like, it wasn't sort of, it was, it was creeping up getting rid of John Travolta and Olivia Newton-John, wasn't it? Yeah, my recollection of that, I don't know if my brain has kind of sh- reshuffled events, uh, but uh, I th- I think we were in uh, that hotel on O'Connell Street. It's, uh, what was the the Shelburne, is yeah, it? Yeah, yeah. Um, the Gresham. Gresham, yeah. Uh, yeah. And uh, I think we were doing Daily Mount with the Lizzie's. Oh, with Lizzie and Graham Parker and the Rumour and all that. Oh, yeah, yeah that's I think right. So. Yeah. And, 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 and BP the Fallon came in and, and said... Yeah, boys, you're, you're number one, you know. So, so I can't do a BP found impression. <laughs> and uh, I, I just remember sitting in the lobby in the in the Gresham and BP coming in and telling us that, yeah. and O'Kelly be there being all yeah, yeah. So whatever. <laughs> O'Kelly being fuck no, Kelly, the manager of the band. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, so called like, manager of the band. Right. Yeah. Okay. Oh, it, okay. I might just get to a little bit of that later on. But I mean, of all the kind of uh, stuff that you had been doing, I mean, you hadn't really been road-worthy tested as much as you might. As Geldof once put it, we hadn't even heard ourselves in the monitors and we were number one. Um, did you go through an awful lot of record companies and get help from Phil Linnett and did Thin Lizzy help and all that kind of stuff and just trying to get the deal that you wanted to no, get? No, we got no help from bloody Lizzy's at all. <laughs> <laughs> what happened to us, Geldof and O'Kelly, uh, we made a, a demo um, Eamon Cannon, uh, who was a sort of a clothing entrepreneur in Dublin at the time. Yeah, he had a program on TV called Eamon High. Oh, that's right, yeah. Uh, He wanted to be our manager, and uh, he paid for us to make a demo at Eamon Andrews Studios in Harcourt Street, just sort of the edge of the high school, which isn't there anymore. Yeah. And uh, Geldof and O'Kelly took the, the tape to to London and hawked it around all the record companies and, and made people listen to it in other way Geldof can do that indeed and uh, out of that came uh, the record deal um, we got 
um, Ver- Richard Branson from Virgin came over to hear us play, I think, in Morans. Yeah. And um, Nigel Grange and Chris Hill from Ensign came over. And I can remember we had a party in afterwards in my parents' house. Uh, and I can remember the two of them sort of Branson and Nigel sort of eyeing each other up in a sort of semi-friendly way over there. But out of that came um, a deal with um, Ensign, which is a subsidiary of Phonogram. Yeah. And um, OK, so you get the band, you do all that kind of thing. Um you know, some of you had done stuff, hadn't you? I mean, like uh, Pete Burkett or Paddy Cusack, he had taken jazz guitar lessons and you you, you all were proficiently untogether. Would that be fair to say at the very beginning? <laughs> very, very untogether. Yeah, we were very proficient at being untogether. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but you had something yeah. going on, you know, the whole lot of you. Yeah, Briquet was the only one who'd had any, had any kind of what you call sort of jazz or modern lessons. I I, I learned the piano and had, I did the clarinet at school, so I, I sort of had a little bit of a grounding in classical music. But uh, the guitar was a different thing altogether, and uh, I was completely self-taught on that. But if you look the at the end of the nineteen seventies, or the Bert Whedon book, so if you listen to the like in the end of the nineteen seventies, um, you know there was so much of a big sort of a seismic change, supposedly in music, with everything to do with new wave punk and all the rest of it. But the one band who was the new band to come out of all of this, not new wave or punk or even Doctor Feelgood or R and B, you were just making music, whatever it was, was the Boomtown Rats, because you had two number ones. Two number ones was a very significant thing to have in those days. It might be the most important thing now. We don't even know how it's yeah. compiled half the time now. But it was huge. I mean, do you remember the roller coaster of it all? Do you remember going to America and trying to impress and it didn't necessarily work the first time around and because Geldof was just shouting at all the record company people from the stage. And they well, it, it, it worked. When we played live, it worked. The audiences loved us. And uh, what Geldof, uh, he did say something rather unwise at, uh, I think it was... Well, it was it was in San Diego. Yeah, uh, we were doing. It was one of the. It was either the first or second gig we we we'd done on our first American tour, and uh, he pointed out all these guys at the back of the theater in satin jackets who were the who were all the radio programmers. There was a convention going on in Los Angeles at the time, and uh, the, the record company had invited all these radio programmers, the people who choose what what's played on the radio. Mm to come and see us playing in San Diego. And uh, Geldof kind of turned the punters against these people. He said, you see all those people at the back in the satin jackets, they're the people who decide what rubbish is being played on the radio nowadays. You know, let them know what you think. And uh, they just got up and cleared off. That didn't help us get played on the radio over there. Well, uh, that might have gone down better in the UK or Ireland, where people were more attuned to yeah, the changes in music that joke. were happening. And well, yeah. also people knew what was happening in music. I mean, one of the things, one of the best examples was, regardless of the fact that in terms of rock and pop, he he, he marries the two together so well. Tom Petty, he was coming over to an England that he thought, hey, this is the way it's done, a rock and roll kind of way. And you toured with Tom Petty and the Heartbreakers, basically blew them off the stage. And I think much to the, um, how shall I put this, as mildly as possible, to the chagrin of Tom Petty himself. He was not a happy man, was he? He he was a bit fed up, yeah, because uh, we, we'd go out and we'd buy like a roll of wallpaper lining paper, you know, that white stuff, and write things like uh, rats eat broken hearts for breakfast and, and pin it up all around the, wherever we were playing so that they, they, they could see that when they <laughs> came on stage they could see this hanging from the balconies and stuff and uh, in the end they just got fed up 
which is a shame because um, I think we all thought they were great and, and uh, were actually quite friendly with one or two of the band, but Petty himself didn't have a lot of time for us. Was he living up to a surname? All right, let's take a look then. Of, at, uh, you know, like looking after number one and closest you'll ever be if your guitar yeah. takes centre stage of the whole thing. If I said I can make it if you can, would you suddenly be able to do it now? Or do you have to, wait a minute, do I have to go back and listen to that? Uh, I'm not sure if I know yeah, that one I as would, well. Yeah, I would, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, we don't do that live, actually. Okay, one it. of the things you did do after those hits and six albums, etc., was play Live Aid, which was organised, of course, by your lead singer, which was the single most important whatever in the history of UK music and the world music and all the rest of it. Do you remember the gig and did you know it was going to be the last one, more or less anyway, because you then played um, Self Aid? Well, Live Aid wasn't the last one. No, but I mean, you played Self Aid in 86 and that was it then. Yeah, yeah, that was, uh, Self Aid was the last last gig we played in in that incarnation. Um, You know, Live Aid was just a great thing. It was a very strange day and... uh, I mean, actually, for me, the the biggest memory is seeing Queen play and and being totally amazed by them. Queen came on, and they'd obviously worked on what they were doing. It was so slick and really, really good. And I just, I just thought, yeah, that's what that's what the Who should have been like. Right, indeed. Okay, well, as I say then, just like you went on then after the Rats and after Self-Aid in Dublin to Simply Red and OMD and Flesh for Lulu and Turing and that. And you also not only (coughs) uh, have have left behind uh, some beautiful pipe work all over um, Hertfordshire, but also um, you became a central heating engineer as such. And you also became an independent financial advisor, a very successful one. And uh, what are you doing now, Gary, when you're not Boomtown ratting? Uh, I'm trying to write songs. So it's music and, now again. Uh, and tuning motorcycles. <laughs> yeah, you and your motorcycles go back a long way. I mean, there's, there's some um, kind of accidents have happened, haven't they? And Ducatis and St. Bartholomew's you were in and all the rest of it. And the, That's and that, right. That goes yeah. back to 1984 when you missed a festival in Holland. Isn't that correct? That's right. That's absolutely right, yeah. Well, I'll tell you, a funny thing is, um, in terms of like getting on with people, do you guys get on these days? Are there, are there fights about royalties and stuff, or is that No, not at all. No, no, no. No, we, we like each other. And uh, that's, that's one of the great things about it, is it's fun. And, you know, there's an affection between us, because we've been through an awful lot together. And, and the reason that we came together in the first place was because we knew each other. Yeah, and you know, so and when you when you know people, um, especially before you get together, and and then you have a band, you it's you you can make allowances for, you know, you you give people room to be themselves. I think that's what we do. We we tolerate each other in an affectionate way, and there's there's no sort of staying in different hotels because we can't stand each other yeah, or anything right, like yeah. that. There are, is that so that's what makes bands. it. Yeah, yeah. exactly. And that's course, what makes it worthwhile. You guys were all together from the beginning, more or less, anyway. So that's the way it is. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Goodbye. Thanks, Gary. Yeah. Take care. All right, Gary Roberts, who died this week um, from the Boomtown Rats, guitarist with the band. Do you want to hear his guitar? Listen to this. Dave Fanning on 2FM.